if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Romans this morning. Uh, today is uh, our first official go at it as far as uh, Advent and Advent season. Um, there's a reason why uh, I call it Advent and not necessarily a Christmas message uh, or a Christmas series or anything like that. And primarily it is to convey the idea that Advent needs to anticipate And what we are doing in this season is we are anticipating that Christ was going to come into the world as Emmanuel, and he is with us, and he is near to us. And so today, we are reminded as we look ahead. Now, one of the things that you have to be mindful of when you begin an Advent series is that we must always remember that in the midst of that anticipation, that Advent actually starts in a period of darkness, And it starts in the dark. And the reason why is because all that time before Christ comes into the world, uh, God was still speaking, but he wasn't speaking through prophets and he wasn't doing it in the way that that he uh, was usually did or accustomed to or the people were receiving it. And so there was this period of, of silence, if you will, and then the announcement that Jesus has come. And so today, I want us to look at a passage in Romans that talks about this idea of of hope in the darkness and what we are to do as believers in regards to our suffering and our hardships. Now, I know that in a room this size that there are many of you that are here today that perhaps you are going through some hardships. You've got difficulty in your relationships, at work, with coworkers, maybe it's with neighbors, Maybe at home with your spouse or or your children, there are hardships that you are experiencing. Maybe your hardships and your sufferings are things that are external to you that you have nothing to do with, but it just seems like things just keep bombarding and things keep hitting you and on and on it goes. And so the question for us then is, how do we look at and how do we view the sufferings that accompany faithfulness to Christ? And so we pick up, In Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, let's read the first four verses together where Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul talks about one of the larger fault lines that have existed within Christianity over the years, for hundreds of years, this idea of being justified by faith. This is an important phrase theologically throughout the Bible, in particular in the book of Romans, it's a theme. And the reason why it's important that we understand this, because how we view our justification before God is really the linchpin of all of our faith. And what I mean by that is there are other denominations and groups of of Christians who would hold to the idea that they are justified by receiving gradually acts of grace and acts of mercy in their life. And so if I go to mass, if I tithe, if I obey, if I serve, then God is going to further my justification and grow me in that just a little bit deeper. And the problem with that is this, is that it makes our justification about primarily a work. And it makes it something that we do. And there are a whole bunch of of Christians who believe that it's about something that they do. 
Whereas our view here at this church and historically the view uh, in, in our church and elsewhere is that it's not that we are infused like a needle or a syringe coming into you and God gives you grace, but rather we believe a thing called imputed righteousness. In other words, that when we put our faith in Christ, God declares us to be righteous and we don't have to do anything else. And so we walk with him faithfully and we obey, but not as a means to receive justification, but rather because we are already rightly declared and justified by God. Now, why is this important? Well, the reason why it's important is because what it goes on to say, since we've been justified by faith, notice what it says, therefore we have peace with God. We have peace. You don't have to look too far in the news today to know that our world is in desperate need of peace. We need to embody the peace of the God of peace that lives in us, and we need to be peacemakers in pursuing that peace, but we need to have that peace that exists within our lives as something that marks us characteristically different from the rest of the world. There was a young man many years ago who understood what this peace was. And all the way back in the 1800s, he left his home and took his family with him on an overseas voyage, and he eventually ended up into Burma. And his sole aim and his sole goal was to go and to preach the gospel and to share and to take care of children and do everything he could to see the world evangelized, in particular the Burmese people. But in 1824, that country got into a, a civil war of its own, and, and it's called the Anglo-Burmese Conflict. And Adoniram Judson was caught up in this conflict, and he was wrongly imprisoned. And they stuck him in prison and they, they tortured him and they beat him. They deprived him of food and water and, and any kind of comfort. And there he, he served for a period of time for the cause of Christ because he went to the uttermost parts of the world and so they locked him up. And he eventually gets out and he becomes a translator for the Burmese people. And he was a, a scholar and he, he translated many uh, notable works in Christianity into the Burmese language. But one of my favorite Adonair Judson quotes is simply this, and I think this is characteristic of a man who has the peace of God in his life. Adonair says this, I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. Now, I'm not going anywhere until every person, every child, every human being hears and understands and responds and knows about the gospel of Jesus. And so he refused to leave. But Paul goes on and he says that we're justified by faith. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. But notice he says that through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, which we stand, and we therefore rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. So we rejoice as, as a very hopeful people, but then he says, not only that, we don't just rejoice in hope, but rather we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in the hard times. We rejoice in the difficulties. We rejoice in the affliction. We rejoice because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. First Peter it says elsewhere in talking about suffering and affliction, he says, when you suffer, your faith more precious than gold is being refined so that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus. In other words, what Peter's saying and what Paul's saying 
is there's a purpose for our suffering. There's a purpose for our pain. And God raises up and he turns little boys into men through suffering. And God raises up and turns little girls and chose them into to grown women through the anvil of suffering. This is most characteristically how God has refined his people, refined his church, grown us as we begin to see and he puts us in places oftentimes that are difficult in circumstances that are hard. Because he knows that in that suffering it's going to produce something in us. And it's going to make us different and we'll become something that we would not become aside or apart from the suffering that we're there and the suffering that we experience. There's an old story that a lot of preachers will tell when it comes to suffering and affliction. And I was going to tell it because it went with the text. And I did some further research and realized that there was a myth. Some of you have heard that uh, oftentimes that shepherds back in Jesus' day, they would, they would take a wandering sheep. If that sheep didn't stop wandering around, that shepherd in Jesus' time would grab that sheep and he would deliberately break his leg. And the reason why he would do that, it sounds harsh, he would, he would break his leg and then he would mend that leg back together. And in the course of that affliction, that suffering, the, the bond of the sheep with the shepherd would, would grow close. And that sheep wouldn't wander away anymore. Well, I've heard that story, I don't know how many different times and in different ways. And, and I came across a couple of things this past week in doing some reading that actually, in, in all reality, the shepherds in Jesus' time did not break the legs of the sheep. But in fact, one creative preacher who took some creative licensing, uh, he took the word break, B-R-E-A-K, to break a leg, and it actually was a derivative of the word break, B-R-A-K-E, like to slow down and to break. And what the shepherds actually did do, they didn't break the leg of the sheep, but rather they would weigh the sheep's legs down to slow them down. So that the shepherd with his rod and with his staff could, could guide the sheep along the way so the sheep couldn't get away and the shepherd could be the shepherd. What it made me think of was when you go to a Six Flags or Walt Disney World and you see those parents and they harness their kids up in this harness and they have this leash that they attach to the kid. And this is usually like the youngest kid that, that is wild and crazy and has no fear in him. And that kid's running around and it's the greatest thing in the world to watch as that parent has to pull the leash. And that kid effectively for the rest of his life, he's a leash kid. <laughs> now I know that sometimes when I go to amusement parks with my family, I feel like I need to put my mom or my mother-in-law on a leash because they walk so fast and don't go quickly. But in the same way, this is what Paul is saying to the church, that leash is there not to prohibit you from enjoying the things that God has given, but rather that leash is there to, to slow you down and to remind you who you were supposed to be tethered to and who you were supposed to be attached to. And to remember that it's for our good and, and for God's glory and for his purposes. And so to weigh it down. And so when God allows us the privilege of experiencing suffering, we know that that suffering has great purpose because it produces endurance. And that endurance then changes into character. Years ago, my wife read a book that was by a guy by the name of Makoto Fujimira. And Makoto was recently on a podcast that I listened to called Cultivated. And Makoto is a master kintsugi uh, artisan. If you know what kintsugi is, it's this idea that these Japanese uh, artists will take broken pots of clay and glass and, and vases. 
And they will begin to, to put the, 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 the pottery back together and they'll do that in the seams when, and they'll inlay it, not with glue, but, but rather with, with precious metals like gold and, and silver. And then he'll sort of work his magic around rebuilding this pot who had come to the end of its life and had been fractured and had these cracks in it. And then all of a sudden he'll inlay it with gold. And the very things that were the cracks... The very things that you didn't want to look at or you tried to ignore within this type of artistry becomes the main focal point of the dish, the main focal point of the, of the vase. And you'll pay a lot of money to acquire one of these things. And suffering is just like this. God takes the, the broken pieces in our life and he masterfully begins to put them back together so that when we see our weaknesses, we know that he is therefore strong. Suffering allows God to infuse the gold of his presence into the broken seams and cracks of your life. This is what suffering does. It's what affliction does. But only when we let God do the one to, to be, be the one to do the mending and let God be God and let him be the one that brings it back together and begins to show it off to the rest of the world. Why? Because this character, this endurance that produces character and this character produces hope. And then notice what he says in verse five. And hope does not put us to shame. We don't live in shame. I spent the first five or six years of my ministry working with students and listening to different speakers and going to uh, camps and having denals and going to conferences and those kinds of things. And I began to, to see sort of a trend early on when I was in student ministry. It oftentimes what would happen is uh, men would stand in a pulpit and they would somehow, either intentionally or unintentionally, they would seek to shame people into decisions or manipulate people into decisions and, and doing things publicly in that forum. And can I tell you that in the, in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament and even the Old, we may experience feelings of shame oftentimes in our sin and in our brokenness, but God never leaves us in our shame. God is a God of, of hope. And he restores us and he renews us and he builds us up and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. I like how one author described hope and he gave just the simplest definition that I've heard in a long time. He said this, hope is the confidence that God will keep all of his promises. That's the hope. It's the promise that God will never forsake us or leave us or abandon us. It's the promise that God will never do something contrary to his word. It's the promise that, that God is who he says he is. He's rich in love and merciful and he's kind and, and he's slow to anger. That God does not judge us according to our sins and, and what we deserve, but rather he sees us for those who are of Christ, sees us through the lens of the sacrifice of our son. Hope means that we believe that God is working together for our good and for his glory. Hope is understanding that one day God is going to restore all things, all the brokenness and all the sin that exists within the world, all the heartache, God will someday make those things right. Hope means God will never disappoint us. He'll never disappoint us. 
Another individual who understood hope, who understood when, when the love of God captivated his heart and that the Holy Spirit had filled him up was a guy by the name of William Carey. And William Carey set off in the late 1700s, early 1800s to go to India to preach and proclaim the gospel. And, and he had a ministry of taking in impoverished kids and establishing orphanages. And, and he would do all kinds of things for the sake of the gospel. He's, he's what's known as the father of modern missions. He established one of the first Baptist missionary societies. And, and, and so he goes to India and he gives his life for the sake of the gospel. And Kerry has a quote that I've grown to love over the years, and it's a helpful reminder for those that are full of the hope and understand the character that God is producing in us, where Kerry says this, it is the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known amongst all the nations. It's our duty. It's our privilege. We say here at Travis, if you're visiting with us, we're a church for the city, but we're also a church for the nations. And we want our city to, to know that we're here and we seek to care for our city in creative ways and, and to do things that would minister to the, the heart of the gospel to the people in Fort Worth, Texas and in the surrounding areas. But we also are a church that exists for the nations. As we look around in this room and we see the flags that represent all the countries of the world and the black flag, which is somewhere up here, represents the closed countries of the world where the unreached people groups are. The places that we can't tell anybody we're going, but we go. And I can't help but, but wonder here in this moment if there are some of you, old and young, brown-haired and blonde-haired, lots of hair, no hair, college student, seminary student, mother, father, son, daughter, I wonder if today God would call some of you to take up the commission to go to one of these countries, maybe, maybe the closed countries for the sake of the gospel and to take William's words carefully and to hold them to heart, to give your life for the sake of the gospel, your blood and your sweat and your tears for the sake of the gospel so that those who have not heard can hear. It is our privilege to be entrusted with that gospel and to make it known amongst the nations. Verse 6 continues along, and he says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. But I want you to see something that happens here that makes this verse in particular, verse 8, all the more important. If you jump ahead to verse 10, I want you to see how God viewed us prior to coming to know Christ. And in verse 10, Paul continues along with the line of thought, for he says, For if while we were enemies, yet now we are reconciled to him. While we were enemies. There's not another translation out of the Greek. It, it literally is the word enemies before him. And God has reconciled us to himself through his son Jesus. It's so the way this looks, and the only way that I know how to illustrate this, it's not the same as laying down your life for your child or, or for someone else, but, but many of you remember just several weeks ago, November the 22nd, I think was the precise day, and on the news, we, we saw and watched with, with absolute horror and, and terror as that man drove that red SUV down the street of that Christmas parade in Wisconsin. 
And he drove 40 or 50 miles an hour hitting children and, and women and five people died. A lot of people got hurt in the midst of this. Now let's just suppose as he's getting ready to go to trial, a guy by the name of Daryl Brooks, let's just say he goes through his trial and it comes time for the sentencing and, and he will be sentenced because there's lots of video footage from all kinds of angles watching this tragedy. And when you see that, you think, what, what's wrong with this man? And, and what evil? How could you do something like that and to run over men and, and women and, and small children? But let's just suppose that on the day of his sentencing, I go to the court and I say, Daryl, I, I hear your sentence. If I had some kind of authority or power, and I said, but, but here's the deal, Daryl. Because I'm rich in love and and full of mercy and slow to anger and do not judge you according to the way your sins deserve. And because I'm the, the person of hope and, and life-giving, I'm gonna trade places with you. And I'm not just gonna get you out of jail, but I'm gonna swap and I'm gonna give you my life. You're gonna raise my kids and have my house and, and have my cars and, and you're gonna do the things that I did, me for you. And we think that's unfathomable, isn't it? And it's hard to process that. Yet in this moment, what Paul is doing is he is saying, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, in other words, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him because of who God is. And because of who he is and being overwhelmed with that reconciliation that he has made me right in his eyes according to Jesus, it propels me to go into my city and into the uttermost parts of the world to see people far from God come to know Christ. It's because I am enamored with the fact that God would reconcile me to himself, an enemy. And he made and he became a friend to me. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoicing our God through Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation and we have a ministry of reconciliation. Notice at the end of verse 10, this little phrase where he just simply says, saved by his life. What Paul is doing in this moment is he is reminding us that, that it is his blood it is his death, it is his sacrifice that guarantees to me today that God will finish what it is that he started in my life all those years ago. That he will work those things out. That he will be faithful to his promises in my life. He'll be faithful to the promises in this church, in your life, and to your families. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God exists in you and dwells in you and God will always be faithful to his promises. And the cross of Jesus proves his love for me, that he will never leave me. And the resurrection of Jesus proves his power that he's going to finish what he started. It's why we have been reconciled. And it's the means by which we have been reconciled. As Ben mentioned earlier in the beginning of the service, part of our world missions offering the first 50 goes to support different Travis endeavors. We have church planners in, in places like India and all over the world, and we are all constantly reevaluating partnerships and, and looking into ways that our church can be on mission. And we have some incredible things uh, in our church historically and in things that we're looking forward to do in the future. But everything after that first 50,000, 70% of that is going to go to our International Mission Board. 
And today, churches all across the world, Southern Baptist churches in particular, are taking up what is known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And Lottie Moon was a remarkable woman. She was the greatest missionary within Southern Baptist denominational life that's ever really existed. And many years ago, all the way back in 1890, the Southern Baptist Convention met here in Fort Worth, Texas at the convention hall. And it is on record stated from the floor as Lottie has lived out her legacy, that one man stood up and made this statement about Lottie. She is the greatest man amongst our missionaries. She was gritty and she was tough, served by herself oftentimes in, in remote places in China and taught and, and preached and proclaimed and did all the things that God would call her to do. I didn't know this this week when I was doing some reading about Lottie and found out that uh, there's a connection with her and Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's plantation. Before Thomas Jefferson owned Monticello, Lottie's uncle was actually the one who owned it. And Lottie was a, a woman of, of great means within this life, but walked away from those things so that she could serve and proclaim and to preach the gospel because God had a hand and a calling on her life. And he said, go, and Lottie went. One writer tells a story about how she had petitioned the mission board to send her someone to come help her. And she needed help and her ministry was growing and the mission board at the time said, we don't have any funds available for any of that. And so Lottie, all the way back in the 1800s, early 1900s, she, she ponied up $1,000 and sent it to that mission board and says, you send me somebody now, I need some help. And that $1,000 today uh, would have been the equivalent of about a twenty-five dollars to $30,000 donation that she gave so that somebody else can go. And so here's what we're gonna do today. And here's how we're gonna end today. In a couple of ways. One, what I want you to begin to do over the course of this service and even over the course of the next month is I want you to ask the Lord what he would have you give to our world missions offering so that we can primarily support the next Lottie Moons of this generation. Those that are willing to go to the uttermost parts. And we're going to help our church planners with our North American Mission Board and the Annie Armstrong. That, that goes to, to provide church plants in very specific places uh, with the North American Mission Board. And we're proud of those things. And so I want us to just to begin to pray, God, what, what would you have me give over and above what I normally give to give for the sake and the cause of the gospel and for these mission endeavors because they're worthy of it? I said this to you before and I'll, I'll say it again. But our IMB missionaries are the very best of us. They were overseas during Thanksgiving and didn't get to see extended family. They'll be overseas, some alone and isolated over Christmas and won't get to see or even talk to family. We have, we have missionaries in, in places uh, that are unreached, that are in undisclosed locations, that are laboring and contending for the gospel in the very darkest of places. So wouldn't it be true of us to say that the very least we could do would be until we can go, we give. But maybe you're here today and maybe you're in a season of suffering and affliction. And I don't know what that suffering or that affliction is, but God knows and God does. And can I tell you that, that what God would have you do this morning is just to cast your worries and cast your cares at his feet and find rest even in the midst of the hard times.
But perhaps, lastly, one or two of you are here and you have never experienced what it means to be reconciled to God. The Bible says very clearly to, to be saved, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That through repentance of sin and faith that Jesus was who he says he was, and you say, Jesus, would you save me from my sins? And he will save you. And so maybe today, one of you or two of you or several of you would call upon his name and be saved today. I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes as our team makes their way up on stage. And can we just ask the Lord in this moment, Lord, what would you, one, have me give? But maybe your prayer is not so much that, but Lord, are you calling me to go? And what does that look like? To give a year of your life six months of your life, a summer of your life, two years of your life on the mission field so that those that are far from God in other countries and places can know Christ. I believe this morning he might be calling some of you to go. I want to tell you another reason why this offering is important and I'll close here. Hopefully in a couple of months, six or seven months, we are gonna bring before the church a plan and talk about how we as a church can be a church that plants churches. And we're gonna do that through this Annie Armstrong offering and partnering with Nam. And I feel led to say this, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Because we are getting ready for the day here at Travis Avenue but we're gonna evaluate our success here in this building, not by who's coming and sitting in a pew, but rather by who's leaving and going to multiply and to share the gospel. And I believe that right now, there are some of you that are in this room that are gonna help us be a church that plants churches. And I believe that some of you, God's gonna call and raise up and to come alongside a pastor or a church planner and to go help them plant somewhere in, in DFW, somewhere outside of the state of Texas, uh, somewhere, uh, anywhere, but maybe God would begin today to prompt your heart to say, I want to be a part of that. To go where no man is, has gone before. And so I'm gonna just pray for you that God would send us out of this place in the next 20 and 30 years and that we would have people coming and going all the time to plant churches and to serve in the uttermost parts of the world, that we would be a church that sends our own into the hard places. So Father, we ask just for your mercy. We know you are rich in it. And so Father, I pray that as you continue to refine our character, to build endurance, in our life. I pray that you would continue to magnify the hope in which you have given us and to magnify that in our hearts, that we'd be a hopeful people, a joyful people. And I pray for those that are here today in this room or even watching online, that you would begin to raise up a group of missionaries out of this church, out of, out of these college students, out of these families that are here, and you'd call them and you'd send them out for the sake of your name. And so Father, we pray and ask that today would be the beginning of that. We love you and we know that you inhabit our praises as we sing to you for you are worthy of our worship and God's people said, amen. Would you stand, the altar's open, let's sing in response to the goodness of God.